Mark Zuckerberg is morally bankrupt. But I'm sure he doesn't see himself that way. I think a lot of this has to do with the ethos of Silicon Valley. To understand this ethos, a good place to start is Ayn Rand. Rand is a Russian-American writer. She left Russia in 1926 for the United States. She's the author of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, works of fiction that promote objectivist philosophy. Atlas Shrugged is a very long read, so I'll just summarize it for you. It's good to be an asshole. Objectivism is a reaction to Soviet-style communism. The Bolshevik Revolution had recently established the Soviet Union. When Rand left Russia, Joseph Stalin had been in power for four years. Ayn Rand watched the rise of the Soviet Union from America. She rejected collectivism and statism. She embraced laissez-faire capitalism. Probably because it was perfectly anti-communist. Her guiding principle is something like, what's communist Russia doing? We should do the exact opposite. The central thesis of objectivism is that being selfish is a virtue. Objectivism states that an individual's moral obligation is to achieve his own well-being. I'm not attacking Rand from an outsider perspective. I used to be a libertarian and I totally bought into what Ayn Rand was selling. How did that happen? I grew up in Southern California, which for the most part is very liberal. I was conditioned to believe that racism is binary. You're either a good person or you're a bad person because you hate people that are different. In high school, I was in a band with a closeted gay guy on lead guitar, a black guy on bass, an Asian American guy on rhythm guitar. I think our parents' singers were Latin and Asian American. We even had an Indian American as a designated dancer. Our drummer was a white guy who would probably describe himself as a recovering Mormon, although he was very connected to the church community. In other words, my group of friends felt fairly diverse. And as a teenager, I felt I had no bias towards people of color, different genders, or sexual orientations. When friends disclosed their sexual orientation to me, it was unsurprising. My family was also fairly affluent. The fatal flaw of my perspective was assuming that the access I had to opportunities was the same for everyone. I've always been socially liberal. Your body, your choice. You do you. It was a natural, logical progression to think of the economy in the same exact way. Any bias or hardships in the system would be eliminated if you just removed all the barriers. Things like getting yourself out of poverty really felt like a personal choice. Study hard, work hard, be rewarded. It never occurred to me that someone living in poverty wouldn't have access to the same educational opportunities that I had. Nor did it really dawn on me that the opportunities for good jobs to fall back on came from my social network full of highly privileged people. Today, when I put my designer hat on, my privilege is a rabbit hole, and I'm still blind to what I don't know. Silicon Valley is full of people like me. White, male, 
cisgender, straight. When you're socially liberal and you create a platform that appears to allow everyone to have a voice, it's hard to stomach that your beliefs and ideology might not align with reality. And when you're blind to the realities of other people, it's easy to dig a hole for yourself. It starts with money. In The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, there's this line. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. It's hard to recognize your own implicit bias and the damage you might be causing when you're making a lot of money. And there's so much money to be made in Silicon Valley. And everyone wants a piece of the action. That's where venture capital comes in. Venture capital firms invest in new companies in exchange for a percentage of the company. VC firms place a lot of bets, and they don't expect the majority to pan out. But when they do, the goal is a liquidity event. A liquidity event is a merger or the purchase or a sale of a company. For Silicon Valley, the goal is usually the initial public offering, or IPO. A venture capitalist doesn't prioritize a company's sustainability. They don't prioritize making the world a better place. A venture capitalist's goal is simply to make a profit. This is the reality that Silicon Valley lives in. Profit is king, and being selfish is a virtue. Most people in the Valley are socially liberal, which makes their implicit bias hard to accept. And regulation? That's an attempt to subvert the free market. Of course you'd fight against that. There's also this fundamental misunderstanding of the First Amendment. Tech moguls have been quick to trot out the First Amendment as a reason they won't censor their platforms. But what does the First Amendment actually say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. The only thing the First Amendment says about freedom of speech is that Congress can't make a law prohibiting it. And the last time I checked, Facebook and Twitter were private companies. A company can't refuse service based on race, color, religion, or national identity, but that's the Civil Rights Act, not the First Amendment. Think about bars or clubs. If you don't dress appropriately, some won't let you in. If you do get in and you drink too much, maybe say something offensive, the bouncer will throw you out. In this case, the bar is trying to let everyone have a good time. They have a choice to make. Kick the asshole out, or let that one asshole ruin everyone else's night. In Germany, there's strict laws banning Nazi symbols, incitement of the people, and hate speech. In order to operate in Germany, Twitter has to filter out hate speech. But they only do it in Germany. Twitter could do the same thing in the United States. It just doesn't want to. Why wouldn't Twitter want to eliminate hate speech from their platform? 
it would affect their profit margins. What do you do when you see a ridiculous post full of hateful things on social media? Twitter's learned that those types of posts increase engagement. Social media companies profit from your engagement. The more you fight with people online, the more time you spend on whatever platform you're using. I don't think hate reading online is good for your mental health, but it is engaging. The more time you spend on a platform, the more ads it can show you. More ads, more money. In 2015, during the Paris terror attacks, Uber used surge pricing. Uber's also done this during natural disasters. It's a good way to make more money. In February of 2019, it was reported that Uber had changed surge pricing so that drivers don't see any of the extra money charged to riders. And when government regulators began to focus on Uber, it was natural for the company to label them as enemies. In 2017, Uber designed a tool called Grayball to flag riders that they believed were associated with city officials and regulatory bodies. Grayball tracked those riders and told them that no cars were available when they used the app. You can't regulate what you can't use, right? At an event in November 2017, Sean Parker, Facebook's first president, called himself a conscientious objector to social media, saying, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. A few days later, Thomas Palihaptia, the former VP of user growth, told an audience at Stanford, the short-term dopamine-driven feedback loops that we have created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. This is a prominent Silicon Valley figure who worked at Facebook from 2001 to 2011. He also said, I feel tremendous guilt. I think we all knew in the back of our minds. When asked about his children, he added, they're not allowed to use this shit. Before iPads and iPhones were mainstream, the average person had an attention span of about 12 seconds. New research suggests that there's been a drop to eight seconds. A goldfish has the attention span of nine seconds. We're completely distracted, yet we live in an attention economy. Unsurprisingly, an evaluation in 2017 of legal practices for deleting criminal content on social networks revealed that deletions of hate comments were insufficient. 90% of punishable content would be deleted on YouTube. Facebook, 39%. Twitter, 1%. The study called for further increased pressure on the networks. Did they listen? You may know Alex Jones, the host of InfoWars. He's the nut job that espouses conspiracy theories involving school shootings. He spread the theory that the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School and the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting were false flag operations by gun control advocates. He said that no one died in the Sandy Hook massacre. He's also said that David Hogg, a Stoneman Douglas survivor, was a crisis actor. Obviously, these claims have been proven false, 
the dead bodies of children should be enough proof. And in 2018, some tech companies grew a spine and suspended his social media accounts. Not Twitter, though. Jack Dorsey, Twitter's CEO, said this. We didn't suspend Alex Jones or InfoWars today. We know that's hard for many people, but the reason is simple. He hasn't violated our rules. We'll enforce it if he does. And we'll continue to promote a healthy conversational environment by ensuring tweets aren't artificially amplified. It took the President of the United States inciting a mob to siege the Capitol building of the United States and tell them to go wild for Jack Dorsey to suspend his account. After ICE started separating refugee families at the U.S.-Mexican borders and putting children in cages, that was in 2018, it came to light that Microsoft had subcontracted with ICE on face recognition software that they were using to identify undocumented Americans. COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement have laid bare many of the underlying problems that critics have been talking about for years, especially in technology. So if you want to work in technology, perhaps as a designer, how can you make sure that you're part of the solution rather than the problem? Mike Montiero, the author of Ruined by Design, looks to the moral and political philosopher John Rawls, who came up with the idea of the veil of ignorance. The veil of ignorance is a method of determining the morality of issues. It asks the decision maker to make a choice about a social or moral issue, and assumes that they have enough information to know the consequences of their possible decisions for everyone, but would not know, or would not take into account, which person he or she is. What would it look like if Silicon Valley practiced this? When Google was categorizing photos of black people as gorillas, it's a fairly safe bet to assume the team didn't have any black people on it. If there were, they'd probably realize during testing that many of their friends were showing up as gorillas. Instead, the team probably tested it using their own photos, which lacked diversity. If you're making a product, the best way to make sure it's inclusive is to have an inclusive team. A team full of affluent white dudes isn't going to realize their implicit biases that they're designing into a product. And how might Silicon Valley practice tracking locations? Uber tracks riders five minutes after they get out of their vehicles. Phil's Coffee used a service named Euclid to track customer movements inside their stores. Tender's Places feature keeps track of every place you've been through your phone's GPS. This all makes sense because location data can be extremely useful for companies to make their product more profitable. But we've all heard stories about people being stalked on the internet. Tinder's a dating app, and unless you're asexual, you're a potential user. The design team should be full of people across sexual and gender spectrums. It's not just inclusive design, it's good design. It's making the app more useful to more people. Tech companies are gluttons when it comes to data. They'll tell you it makes their product better, which is definitely possible. But then again, data breaches aren't rare. By the middle of 2018, the number of breached records surpassed the entirety of 2017. No company is immune to hacking attempts. Five million user records were exposed at Lord & Taylor, 19 million exposed at the Sacramento Bee, 27 million exposed at Ticketfly, 37 million exposed at Panera Bread, 92 million exposed at MyHeritage, 
100 million exposed at Facebook, 150 million exposed at Under Armour. That's in one year, and that list is not exhaustive. These data breaches are the results of hackers exploiting bugs in the software. So even if you trust a company like Facebook to not use your data maliciously, it's still waiting to be exposed through an attack. The first step in regulating these data-hungry companies is to create transparency for users so they know what data companies have collected about them. The General Data Protection Regulation is a European Union law that regulates what a company can collect as well as how soon they need to report a data breach. This applies to any organization with business ties to the EU. The cost of compliance is a fine of up to 20 million euros or 4% of your annual global turnover, whichever is higher. Obviously, the tech giants operate in Europe. Their technology can be adapted to collect less data. Their technology can be adapted to be transparent about the data they're collecting. The tech companies just don't want to do it because it doesn't increase their profits. But if we're stuck using data-hungry apps, the least we can do is pressure lawmakers to regulate them and require transparency.